welcome everybody to the WSL B Team Podcast. I am Chris Morrow, editor of WorldSurfLeague.com, joined again by Mr. Dave Prodan. Hello, Head everyone. Dave, so we are, uh, let's see, almost a week removed from Lower Trestles, but still, uh, you know, dealing with the uh, the aftermath and the ratings and stuff like that, and we're getting ready to head out to Europe, but let's talk first off about your... Uh, your fantasy team and how you fared. We'll start with the women. Let's start on a let's start on a lighter note. Let's tell the people where we are today. Oh yeah. We've now hit the big time this because is... we are in our own very intimate fuzzy box of pod podcasting that they built for us because of the success of this podcast. We have mood lighting. What's the light color today? You could choose between purple, pink, blue, mauve. What is that? I think we're in mauve today. <laughs> That's what it looks like. So yeah, we're we're stepping up. Hopefully, you noticed the the improved audio quality. <laughs> well, to be determined. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get into the women's event. Um, my women's fantasy team did okay. Um, I had both Tyler and Steph. Um, so those are good Smart. calls. Yep. Um, and I'm trying to remember who else I had. Uh, I had Joanne DeFay, um, who did okay. She was a quarter finalist. And then I had Lakey Peterson, who was an early out. Dude, so you and I had the exact same team. It sounds like. Um, I went Steph, which I was super thrilled to see Steph back in the final. Got that little quarter uh, quarterfinal monkey off her back. Um, and I did go with Tyler just because I thought the momentum was there. And, you know, now you look at, you know, heading into Europe, she could clinch. Yeah, I mean, she is, if we're talking about her clinching in Portugal already, like, she is well out in front. And I think when you start looking at the ratings, like, she has four wins. Yeah. And no one else even has two. Yep. Um, I think Chris is in third. She doesn't have any at this stage. Um, and if Tyler does clinch this year, it'll be the first time that someone other than Steph or Chris has won the women's title in 10 years. That's amazing when you think about that because that's just a stranglehold that they've had on that. And it makes you wonder, you know, you look back at the history of women and their world titles and their reigns and, and you wonder, you know, how many can Tyler get? You know, what when you look at the landscape these days, do you think she's going to go on a streak? Is it something where, uh, or, or is a Carissa, uh, somebody like that going to be firing back? You know, I, I was there when Steph first won her world title, and she was just so much better than the rest of the field at that time that the most of her first world titles were almost, like, de facto, like, she's going to win the title. Mm-hmm. I think when Carissa came on board, the field was much harder. I mean, Tyler was in there, Sally was in there. And so I think Tyler's, if she does win this year, it'll be an accomplishment. But I don't think it's a guarantee of, like, a dynasty. I think the thing about Tyler is, like, she won her first CT when she was 15. Like, she's a wild card, won the Beachley Classic at Manly. Um, so it feels like she's been around for a long time, but she's really young still. Yeah. So there's a lot of potential for her to win multiple titles. But I do think the field's a lot harder. Yeah, I think. And, and the fact that the field's a lot harder and she's won four events makes her accomplishment this year that much greater. Yeah, you know? and we should talk a little bit about she is working with Glenn Hall as well. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously seeing huge success there. Let's talk about Courtney Conlog a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. pr- disappointing result, obviously, for her camp at Trestles. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was actually kind of meandering and loitering up in the competitors area uh, in the wake of that heat where she lost. And, you know, she she was handling it pretty well. She understood what she did wrong. Um, I think, you know, with all the ups and downs that she lived through last year, she's keeping this thing in perspective. She's well aware of the fact that, 
the title the, the title is Tyler's to lose at this point, you know, and and she's just really kind of gunning to make her work for it. I think it's similar to Wilco in the sense that Courtney held the yellow jersey pretty early in the season. It was a back and forth thing, um, and now given the way the ratings are shaking out. She is firmly the underdog now, and as you said, it's Tyler's to lose. Do you think that mindset for her is being like, I've got nothing to lose, I'm going to go out there and attack? Do you think it'll help her through the European leg? I think she'll be way more relaxed. You know, I definitely feel like through Huntington Beach and Trestles, there was a tenseness with with Courtney where she just looked a little more carrying this weight of the world on her shoulders, you know? Um, and... Now that she really has nothing to lose, I think I think she'll surf a lot looser. Speaking as a former competitor and obviously being really, really close to a lot of the world's best surfers of the past two decades, would you say it's almost a misnomer to have like home court advantage? And I guess I mean that it feels like a rarity in which you get the local surfer performing well at that event. Do you think there's added pressures of just having all that all that support, or maybe not necessarily support, but people around you wanting you to do well in your hometown? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, look, you look on the men's side of the equation, three of the top four guys at the end of the day live in San Clemente and surf trestles, right? So you have Philippe, that's his backyard now. Jordy, trestles is his backyard. He, he can almost ride his bike there from his house. Um, and then Tanner Godowskis went absolutely berserk. Um, Courtney, I would not call Trestles her backyard. She's a Huntington Beach girl. And, and you know, she's definitely more of a beach break surfer than a point break surfer, in my opinion. So um, it, I think it depends. And, and really, you know, I think that all depends on the individual and how they respond. You know, there's some athletes who, who almost, they don't like the crowd. They're, they're a little camp around them in this huge entourage and this huge, you know, home team cheering for them because they feel more pressure they're almost better on the road you know um and it really just depends who that is but there's definitely um home court advantage in surfing without a doubt i mean we whether it's sean holmes back in the day at j bay and every name there's 50 pipe specialists we can go into have been wild cards through the years and you look at uh like chopu uh and it's it's ridiculous but um, that would be my response in terms of Courtney. I just wouldn't call Trestles or home break. Sure, it makes sense. Well, you touched on the guys there for a second, so let's move into the Hurley Pro at Trestles. Chris, how'd your fantasy team do? Mine actually did okay. I had Joel and Jordy. Um, my bombs were actually Julian and Mick, um, which was unfortunate. I had Kelly, who did all right. I had Brett. Um, and then I had Stu Kennedy. So that's good. Man. Yeah, I did. I this was my best result of the year. Still in our building, I only got third place. So <laughs> this is this is a this is a breaking news on the podcast. I have been so disappointed in my own team. This is the first time I've actually looked at it since the event. Um, yeah, I had John, John, and Gabby. They obviously yeah. went down early. Mick went down early. Felipe had a good run. Kayo went down early. Chloe, I thought really surfed well. Yeah, um, and went down to Kelly in a really close heat. And then I had Freestone and Alejo, so yeah. not the best outing for, for Darth Proteus. Let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about Kelly because we touched on that last time. Yeah. I think everyone from the start of the year and maybe the last couple of years has looked at Fiji, Tahiti, and Pipe as events. Like, look, he could win those when he's 100, mm-hmm. right? His, his intimacy with those specific breaks and, 
his ability and his bravado, it's, it's, it's going to last for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I think people looked at maybe the more acrobatic or the more quote-unquote high-performance waves like trestles as almost a, a, a Achilles for him. Mm-hmm. I thought he looked amazing this year. Yeah, look, I thought he looked great. The, he, this was my, my analysis, and I'm going to probably offend a bunch of people here, but the one thing that I would say I was I – was, my bone to pick with Kelly surfing this year, especially when I was comparing it to like a Philippe or even Parco round one or whatever, was Kelly was doing a lot of recovery moves, kind of rolling up the windows and getting the crowd like, whoa, you know, like, and it, so where I really love Kelly and especially going back and I, I was actually looking at old videos of trestles through the years, the years where he dominated one, there was no recovery Kelly. It was authoritative just freaking owning every turn kelly and there was no doubt you were making that move kelly um and that's where i feel that's where the difference is today in those types of you know rippable conditions you're seeing he's bobbling a little more and all that and sometimes the fan it, it plays into the judges because it's, it's like oh did he make a little it? bit of showmanship yeah. Yeah. and that's <laughs> always been kind of part of his act yeah but that's that's an yeah. interesting observation and so that was the part that that bothered me because just you know, I like to see guys stick their landings and stick their moves. And, you know, when when Joel was on and, and Jordy, that was, I thought, one of the best things about his surfing. You know, he just muscles through everything. And it's just like, there's no bobbling. There's no anything. It's just, and and um, that's what you see at Mick, J-Bay, and everything like that. And so that was where I felt like Philippe had the edge on Kelly from the get-go because you know, you go back and watch the heat analyzers and watch Philippe's heats. He was averaging 18 almost up until he lost. You know, I think every heat he was averaging two nines or something. It was ridiculous what he was doing. And he barely ever flinched on any of his moves, you know, whether it was ridiculous carves or big airs. For sure. And I think that was really, really impressive with, with Jordy in the semifinals against Felipe. It was a smaller day. Um, it was really clean. But you're looking at it going like, uh, if we're looking at acrobatic surfing here, Felipe's obviously got the advantage. Mm-hmm. And he ended up sticking maybe the biggest air of the contest for like projection versus the actual size of the wave. And Jordy didn't buckle. He just he just came back and threw everything he had at that heat and took him out very cleanly. Like It was really impressive to see someone who for so many years was in title contention. He's had a few seasons where it's been injury-plagued. Mm-hmm. And it was great to see him not only competitively savvy again, but surfing at that really elite level where you go, yeah, this guy is a title contender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Board looked really good under his feet the whole week. Um, it's And what's amazing is that, keep in mind, Jordy, the week before, was getting barreled off his butt in Namibia with Strider <laughs> uh, in the hollowest, you know, wave ever and then he comes to lowers and, and just has no problem which I find more even more impressive that he adapted that quickly yeah and I think that goes back to the adage of sometimes the best training for an event is just surfing good waves yeah I mean on the men's side though Jordy's win now vaults him into title contention I think on the women's side it, it's pretty crystal clear it's Tyler's to lose uh to to crib Sean Doherty a little bit the men's side is clear as mud um <laughs> he had a lot of top seeds going down and in dramatic and certainly highly discussed fashion early on in the event. Yeah. I mean, look, the the Wilco heat with Simpson and the Medina heat with uh, Godowskis, those were both 
very close calls. Uh, and it was interesting because, I mean, obviously your your job is to handle the quote unquote drama around these things as, as WSL spokesman. Tell me your interpretation of of what went down and, and how do you deal with this stuff when it goes on? Yeah, I mean, I look, this is my 11th year and I think that <laughs> before I even started working for the WSL, I was like the biggest armchair critic. And I think that's one of those things. I, I, would, on it, I would argue that year in and year out, surfing is the most watched subjectively scored sport on the planet. Mm-hmm. And what that is rendered in its audience is like a huge passion and a lot of opinions and a lot of experts. And these certainly were not the first scoring controversies that we've come across. They definitely will not be the last. And so I guess from my position, the way I look at it is like, okay, people are unhappy with the scores, the athletes, starting with the athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I just kick back and say, look, I, I can have an opinion. Other people can have an opinion. But at the end of the day, the judges answer to the commissioner's office. If there's an issue, the commissioner's office analyzes the heat and everything that happened. And if the mechanisms that they put into place to ensure that the most quality scoring and results are happening mm-hmm. um, worked, then they say there's no change. You know, we've reviewed it. We'll talk to the athletes about it. But that's it. And minus them coming out and saying we're making a structural change because there was a mistake, mm-hmm. there's no point in us putting anything out there. Right. Now, at the same time, I could easily prod Kieran in front of a camera or Richie in front of a camera. But from a PR standpoint, look, we see Gabrielle and Matt Wilkinson and Julian Wilson surf every week or every day. Right. So do our fans. Everyone knows that they are elite level surfers. And despite Richie and Kieran being world-class surfers in their own right, no one is going to take their opinion over the surfer's opinion because their exposure to those surfers is more consistent. Mm -hmm. So, look, I trust that the mechanisms the commissioners have in place are working. Mm -hmm. And if they're working and they think there was no mistake, then, you know, we let that one ride out. I think a lot of the dialogue between the surfers after the fact was important and revealing. And I think a lot of people that came out pretty heated right away after the fact and in private, unfortunately, we're saying, you know what, I actually see how it was a 3-2 decision the other way, and we move on. You know, it's funny because watching that thing live, I was somebody who, right off the bat, was like, oh, wow, that was a great freaking wave, you know? And and it was, because it was one of the best waves that actually came through that morning, the sure. one that Gabe got. Yeah. It was, but keep in mind, it was down the beach, and so there was a lot of people who were just, just the fact excited by the fact that that was one of the only ways it didn't close out that day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of a sloppy day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that he, you know, when he goes down, it's like, oh, my gosh, I think so perfect. And look, he's just tagging the lip, right? It wasn't until I went back and did the same thing that Kelly and some of these other guys did where I really took a look at the whole heat. And I think a lot of times people, when they go, did he get the score? Well, you can't argue a score until, unless you look at every other score from the heat. And that's where it gets really just sort of muddy. You talk about muddy. It's like, did they get the first exchange right? You know, did they get the, the, the are there, are they doing makeup scores, you know? And I think that's where people really kind of would love to get some transparency and find out how it all works. So, And specifically at Trestles too, again, curving from Sean Doherty, I thought his comment was bang on about Judging a wave like trestles is difficult because you're judging it on multiple axes, whereas at pumping Chopu, it's mm. commitment, criticalness of your ride, and, and it's a pretty standard judging criteria. At trestles, there's a right and a left. There's backhand, there's forehand. 
there's in-the-pocket power, there's on-the-face maneuvers, there's airs, and you're trying, to, you're trying to corral all those different components into a consistent scoring criteria, yep. and you're going to see close heats, and the close heats that we saw this year aren't any different to past years or aren't any different to the QS years. It's going to continue at that venue because every guy is so good. And you're 100% right, and Trestle's probably more than any other wave has that apple and oranges problem that you run into because you do the wave allows for so many options like you said it could be out on the face it could be in the air it could be in the pocket whatever it is right left whatever and it is not an easy job it's probably the hardest place to score on tour and where you see some of those you know where we're likely to see more of these calls oh for sure and i mean i i I think closing out on those comments too is I think in the last podcast we did with PK, I, I questioned the ability of the wild cards from a speed standpoint. And I think both Brett and Tanner like blew that issue yeah. out of the water. Like I knew that they were previous CT surfers. I had questioned whether they kept their speed at that level. Um, I thought their pacing on the wave was excellent. I think you know the cool thing about Tanner that I heard or I saw him post after the event was since he fell off tour on that weird cutoff year, he had been questioning his confidence. You know, he has twin older brothers. Pat was on the CT, didn't have the best experience, was injured a lot. And then Dane's kind of this globe-trotting barrel hunter that has been averse to contests in recent years. So he had two different paths that he could look to. And Tanner had said, like, look, my confidence wasn't there. And he was working with another former CT surfer and Nate Yeomans who was coaching him at that event. And I think for him getting a third place and beating the guys that he beat and posting those high scores, I think he got the only 10 yeah. at the event as well. Yeah. He was like, I have the confidence and I'm now hungry again to get to that level. And that's really cool to see. Yeah, that's great to see. And, and it kind of segues us nicely into the, the next subject, which is that QS race and that QS battle because it is, it is heating up right now as we get ready to head for Europe. Um, there's already been a few smaller QS events um, recently, and you know things have been shaking up a little bit, but it's about to get uh, significant this weekend as we head into the in the Cascation, the ten thousand. Yeah, for sure. I think the commentary on the QS this year is that the schedule is a little more anemic than it's been in past seasons, so the opportunity to post big results isn't what it used to be. So the guys that have done that already are looking pretty secure. And, I mean, a look at the top ten right now. There's a lot of new faces. You've got Leonardo Fioravanti. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's had success on the CT as a replacement surfer as well. Like, that kid's a world-class surfer. Absolutely. First guy from Italy that may qualify. You've got Connor O'Leary, Ethan Ewing, Joanne Deru, uh, you know, Kanoe Garashi, who's probably safe on the CT. You've got Ezekiel Lau, Evan Geisman, David Silva, Ian Gouveia, and Bino Lopes. So, yeah. I mean, it is a lot of new faces up in that mix right now. It'll be really interesting to see how they can hold on through that European QS as well as Hawaii at the back half of the year. Yeah, and I think this is where things get interesting because you have a lot of these CT guys like Jeremy Flores who are on the outside looking in right now, and they've been this way several times in their career, and they're very familiar with it. Um, But you look deep into the rankings, and what you need to look at is those guys have blank spots in their QS checkbox. So they're they, every point they get counts, right? Whereas a kid like, you know, uh, let's say Bino or somebody, he's he's his his best result, you know, he, he has he has to do better than six hundred and thirty points for to gain any ground. And, you know, and it's only the difference between that that, that matters. 
And it's been such a bizarre year on the men's CT. And I was talking to Kieran Perot, still in town, and Travis Logie at lunch yesterday, and they said not a lot of guys on the CT have backed themselves up on the QS yet. And, and they feel like that's going to shift considerably through these last few events of the season. And when those big tiger sharks move into the pond, mm-hmm. like for someone that's been doing well all year, it's easy to watch their ranking drop down because you're seeing these thoroughbreds come into the four and just dominate the big events, specifically when we come to Hawaii. Well, look, a 10,000 is a massive, massive event, and there's only been a couple this year. And, you know, you look at Connor O'Leary, his ranking is 100% on Bolito. I mean, 90. You know, he's got one other second, you know, a, a solid result in like a 6,000. That's that's carrying him pretty good. But these 10,000s move the needle significantly because there's only a handful, few, handful of them. So this, the QS ranking is going to blow up in the next two weeks. Um, it's not going to resemble anything like it resembles right now. Um, and when you look at, to your point, you know, Kai Otten, Keanu Singh, Matt Banting, Jeremy Flores, Alejo Muniz, Jack Freestone, Davey Cathals, and Adam Melling, not to mention Connor Coffin and Miguel Pupo. Those guys are all on the outside looking in, and they're going to need either to get their butts together on the CT uh, or make up some ground on the QS. A few of them have, they really, you know, Connor's best bet is CT. He's mm-hmm. pretty far down on the QS. He's like 78 or something like that. Other guys like Davey Cathals and that, they're right there. They're knocking. So it's going to be an interesting couple weeks on that 2017 situation. For sure. And, and we'll obviously drill into this next week and the week after <laughs> in more specifics. But, Chris, your hot take on the men's European – oh, men's and women, excuse me, European CT leg. The women are in Kashgash, and then they both come to Hasegor, and then the men round it out at Panish. This year, uh, Nazare, noted big wave spot, but mm-hmm. also pumps when it's very small uh, in Paniche, is a backup venue for that um, that last event in Europe as well. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on the European leg for both the men and the women? Well, I think we talked about this in the last show. The, the dream leg where it's Fiji, J-Bay, Chopu, and to a lesser extent even Trestles, I feel like the stats are revealing and the stats tell the truth, right? So... What you see is what you get on the stats. Those guys who've proven themselves at those breaks tend to do really well. What's interesting about Europe is it's like just toss the stats in the air and throw them out the window because anything could happen. I mean, France itself, it's like you could be in surfing in anything from two and a half foot slop to 10 foot barreling, you know, just A-frames. And these guys go over there with 20 boards each, you know, not knowing what to expect. And Portugal's very much the same thing. I will say, you know, guys like Jack Freestone and John John who do well in, you know, look at Brazil, right? That punchy beach break kind of stuff. I think those guys are going to do well. I, I Somebody brought up, and I can't even remember who it was, so I apologize for not giving him credit. But it lowers. When Jack got just annihilated by Slater, somebody brought up a good point. They're like, you know, he doesn't really... He's not used to finishing waves and point breaks because the guy's so attuned to shooting video segments and stuff, and it's all in peach break and stuff like that. And I'm like, that's a kind of a good theory, you know, because if you look, go back and watch Heat Analyzer. Jack didn't finish a wave. He did not complete a single wave. 
And uh, that's going to hurt him at places like Trestles. But in a beach break like where we saw him when he got second in Brazil, which is kind of what you could see France looking like and Portugal looking like, I think he becomes much more dangerous. Yeah, that's that's a super good insight. So we'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, you can always you can always catch Chris and I on Instagram. Chris is at Chris underscore Morrow. I'm at Dave Prodan. And we have the Cash Guys 10,000 QS events starting soon and the Cash Guys Women's Pro. Both are available to watch live and for free on worldsurfleague.com as well as the WSL app. And we'll see everyone next week.